Well, today we're continuing our series, I Want to Believe But. So in the first week of the series, I want to believe but my prayers aren't answered. And then last week, I want to believe but the Bible is filled with violence. And today is kind of a continuation because today we're talking about I want to believe but the Bible encourages genocide. Genocide, what a difficult thing. And so we're building off of what we talked about last week in John chapter 11, where Jesus is snorting mad. He's angry. He's like physically angry about the suffering and the pain in the world. Now, I want to read one of the most classic texts in the entire Bible about genocide. And we have to ask ourselves this question, what do we do with this? So it's from Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are to enter, to possess, and drives out before you many nations, and then here we go with all the ites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you, and you have defeated them, and here it comes, everybody, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. That sounds like Cobra Kai from the Karate Kid. No mercy. No mercy. What do you do with that? That's troubling at best. It's just very, very difficult. And here's what some people have done. They they walk away, either partially or totally, walk away. I totally walk away. It's like, well, I'm done with the Bible. Um, God is a genocidal maniac and I just have no time for that. They walk away totally. But a lot of people have just partially walked away. They say, you know what? Uh, I don't believe in that, but I, there are some good things in the Bible. And then we begin to kind of pick and choose. Like, I'll choose this, but I won't choose that. And choose this and I won't choose the back and forth, right? So we get some of that. Others on the opposite side of that whole extreme say, I'm going to embrace it. Hey, God's doing his justice. It, it is what it is. That's just the way that it goes. Well, why are we doing this series? And actually, that's been a question that has been asked to me numerous times. Like, Why are we bothering with this series? For those of us like me who've grown up in church and we've grown very comfortable with Adam and Eve being the first couple in all of creation, not a unique couple, which means the world is about 6,000 years old. I've grown very comfortable with that. Why are you messing with me? I mean, it's been, it's working for me. Why are you messing with me? Or last week, the global flood, was it global or was it local? Why are you messing with me? Why are you saying it was a local flood, not a global flood and all this hyperbole? Why are you messing with me? And now we come to this genocide. Some people say, you know, okay, God says kill men, women, children, kill the animals, kill absolutely everything. But you know what? I've grown, I've grown comfortable with that. Can you just leave me alone? What, what does it matter? What does it matter if you're trying to change or adjust the way I have viewed these stories in the Bible? Why in the world does it matter? Look, we can get very comfortable with things that are unpleasant. It's kind of like the guy that lives next to the sewage plant. Right After a while, he doesn't smell the mess. He doesn't smell anymore. He grows very comfortable. He can't smell the stink. The problem is this. Nobody else wants to be around him. Everybody else is running away because they do smell the mess. And the problem is this, everybody. There's multitudes of people who are walking away from God's word and from the belief 
in the Bible, a belief in the Bible, they're walking away with it needlessly. They don't have to because there's things that we can understand about the text and that doesn't have to happen. That breaks the heart of God that people are walking away. Let me just, this is Pastor Matt and I have talked about this many times. We talk about high schoolers. High schoolers across our nation in the United States of America who grow up in church, who are there almost every single Sunday, who were involved in youth groups. I mean, they're the dedicated, not I come every now and then, but they come all the time. Then they go away to college. Do you know what the percentage of them that go away to college who were totally involved in church, like leave the church, either leave it permanently or leave it for the next decade of their life because they went to a biology class and it said, hey, the world is more than 6,000 years old. Or somebody in college says, hey, God is a genocidal maniac and they don't have an answer for it. The, the percentage is like over 80%, everybody. I can remember the exact number. It's big. It might even be closer to 90%. But I remember when I read that number years ago from that statistic, it like shocked me. This is why we're doing it. That's why we're doing it. I received an email last week from a family in Michigan. And they said, hey, our teenagers are watching this. And it's allowing us to have great conversations with them. And I was like, yes, it's exactly what we want. That's why we're doing it. We're also doing it because particularly in the West, this whole idea of atheism has grown exponentially. But actually, if you look at the numbers, atheism really isn't, isn't really growing. It's still a very, very small number. What is growing explosively is people who declare themselves as non-religious. We call them the nuns, N-O-N-S, the nuns. The nuns are saying, you know what? I don't want to be involved in a religious institution. I can't trust the institution. I can't trust all the Bible. I want to pick and choose things out of the Bible. I want to choose the things that make the most sense to me. Here's the problem with that. When we pick and choose, then we're just going to create a God in our own image. And we're going to come right back to the problem we were in the first place. We shouldn't follow that same path. The Bible actually says in Psalm 119, verse 105, that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. This is where God is revealed. This is it. It's not, God's not revealed because I pick and choose pieces of God and have a puzzle that is completely unfinished. I need all of this. So how in the world, everybody, this is why we're doing it. How in the world can I trust a God, center my life on a God as revealed to me in the Bible? Because this is where God is revealed and pick and choose. It doesn't work that way. I'm going to lack serious knowledge and serious understanding of who God is. So what am I to do when the Bible says that God is actually encouraging genocide? How do I handle that? Where do I go with that? And does it break my heart and does it break your heart that people are needlessly walking away from the very answer they crave in life, the important answers to life. Now, Richard Dawkins, I hate to keep beating the drum on Richard Dawkins, but for the last 15 years, he's had just these sound bites that grab our attention. And, and I've, I've mentioned them, right? God, in Dawkins' estimation, is the most un 
pleasant character in all of fiction, right? That just grabs your attention that God is unjust. He's a bloodthirsty racist, right? These things that he says. You know, I actually watched an interview of a preacher or a theologian, I can't remember which one he was, who had debated Dawkins. And he said, you know what? Richard Dawkins, really smart guy, really smart guy. He knows how to do good scholarship. But when it comes to the Bible, he doesn't do good scholarship. He doesn't look at the text in its context. He doesn't look at the ancient Near East and understand it. That he takes the Bible and he sets it off all by itself and says, you know what, I'll do good scholarship everywhere and I know how to do it. But when it comes to the Bible, I'm just going to look at it through my lens. Like year 2020, I'm going to look at it in my culture and do my lens and I'm going to say, God is a genocidal maniac. Everybody, don't become the Christian version of Richard Dawkins. Don't say, you know what, I'm comfortable with the fact that, hey, God says wipe them all out. Well, that's God's justice. Wipe them all out. God says the world is 6,000 years old. God says the world was covered by a flood. Science doesn't say that, but God says it. But you know what? I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm not going to look at it through ancient Near Eastern eyes. I'm going to be the Christian version of Richard Dawkins. And I'm just going to say, I believe it because it says it. I believe the literal word. Well, we can be literally wrong. We can be literally wrong. And people are dying from lack of knowledge. And the cool thing is, everybody, they don't have to because we have it right at our fingertips today. We can understand the language and the culture and the genre in which the literature was written in. And we can have answers to who God is as revealed to us in Holy Scripture that is awesome. And we should do it. And we should not try to pour new wine into old wineskins just because we become comfortable with believing things a certain way. We need to make adjustments. We need to be open and prepared to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to what God is trying to say to us. So now we come to genocide and we come to good scholarship. And this is what we're about today. Now, what this series so much is about is your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the many of you who have sent me questions. Now, you can throw your questions in the chat right now. My email address is on the screen. Please email me. Daily Grace, Monday to Friday, Daily Grace is based on your questions. When you ask a question, it allows all of us to clarify something. So many others are going to have your same question and it allows us to find clarity about who God is. So do not, do not, do not hesitate to send in your questions. All right, here's the thing. So many people look at God and say, God is not good. This is what Dawkins and others are saying. This We hear this um, on the TV or on college campuses all the time. We read the Bible. We have a gross misunderstanding of the Bible, and we say God is not good. The gods from the ancient Near East were not good. They were lying, cheating, stealing. They were unfaithful. Matter of fact, Aristotle says when he thinks about it, he says, you know what? These gods that we believe in, this pantheon of gods, sure does look a lot like human beings. And people began to disbelieve in the gods. But the God of the Bible is presented in stark contrast to the gods. That is what's so unusual. And the writers, the biblical writers said, just over and over again, emphatically, that God is good. The writers of all the other gods didn't say their gods were good, faithful, and just. 
I want to give you some scriptures because the biblical writers did not view God as bad or as a moral monster. They looked at God as loving and patient and kind. They were, they were just thrilled and in awe of God's goodness. And that should grab our attention because they're writing from their perspective and they're not stupid. I mean, the Bible, by anybody's account, whether they're a believer in the Bible or not, this Bible right here is considered the finest, highest, most academic, scholarly, excellent work of all ancient literature right here. So the people who wrote the Bible, the group, they're not stupid. Let's look what they said about God. Exodus 15, 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? You're majestic in holiness. You're awesome in glory and you're working wonders. You know, I would read that and I would look at it through my 2020 lens, through my culture, through my context and say, oh, why is the Bible doing that? Why is it trying to create this like competition? My God's better than your God. That's that's bad scholarship on my part. That's bad scholarship. Good scholarship is to go back to the ancient Near East and understand that the gods, all the gods, 100% of all the gods back then, where they were lying, cheating, stealing, immoral, unfaithful. And so God comes along and he's good, he's loving, he's steadfast, he's kind. That's the way it's written. That's the way it's written. This isn't talking about the gods that we think about today, particularly the Abrahamic, the Abrahamic God right? The father, Abraham, the father of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. That God, as contained in the Bible, is a good God. But that's not what's being spoken of in Exodus 15, 11. Those gods were unfaithful, lying, cheating, and stealing, and enslaved people. Psalm 73, 13. What God is as great as our God? Psalm 106. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Notice that. God's not bad. He's good. His love endures forever. What love? All the other gods didn't have any love. They were selfish. Deuteronomy 32. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All of his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is what he does. God is just. The other gods weren't just. Psalm 36, 5. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the sky. All the gods, their unfaithfulness reached to the skies. That's who they were. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? The gods were not for them. They were against them. And along comes the God of the Bible in stark contrast, totally unique, unlike any other gods, not even close. The creation story isn't close to any other writing. The biblical story giving us a revelation of who God is, is unlike any other gods existed. All those other gods were created in man's image. This God right here was created in the image of God, the true God, because this is utterly unique. You will not find any other God described as the God of the Bible. He is for us, not against us. Finally, Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So first of all, this is what we need to do. We needed to understand that the biblical writers are saying that God is good. They're not confused about that at all. Now, let's briefly move towards what is this God who apparently is calling us to commit genocide of people, men, women, and little children, right? Call us commission. What does God think of human beings? Mark Twain says this about God. It says, man was made at the end of the week's work 
when God was tired. Man was made at the end of the week's work when God was tired. So Twain says God has a very low view of humanity. But here is what the Bible actually tells us about God's view of humanity. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is humankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and you have crowned them. Here it comes. This is what God thinks of you and me and all of humanity. You have crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and have put everything under their feet. When I was in seminary, my professor told me, look, they said Genesis 1 is a creation story. Genesis 2 is a creation story. They don't exactly match. So you should distrust God. That's that's the kind of seminary that I went through, went to. It kind of undermined my trust. But you know what? In the ancient Near East, it was expected that you would write multiple accounts of a creation story, which is what you get. And in Genesis chapter one, you have it from God's viewpoint. God speaks. He brings order. Genesis chapter two, who's doing all the speaking? Who's bringing all the order? Genesis chapter two is about humanity speaking, naming things, naming the animals and bringing order. And God is saying, you know what? I want you to participate in the process of transforming this world and making it the kind of place of goodness. Goodness, because that's the one word that comes through in Genesis one and two, the goodness of God. I need you to make it. God's not just gonna come down and say, zoop, it's good. No, no, God wants us to participate with him. That's what Psalm chapter eight is saying. And that's why you get two different versions. One God is speaking and chapter two, humankind is speaking and bringing order with God, participating in the process of changing the world. Now, that's God's view of humanity. Now, I wanna return to Deuteronomy chapter seven and read all of it in its context, the first five verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered you over, delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must, here it is, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. All right, let's time out right there, okay? So if I'm reading that through my 2020 eyes, through my culture, my context, and my, my, my language, right? Then I just say, God's a moral monster. God just told me to do genocide. God just told me to wipe them all out. That's bad scholarship. So if I want to do bad scholarship, then I don't go back to the ancient Near East and I don't have any understanding of their culture at all. That's completely bad scholarship. But when I come to verse number three, even if I do bad scholarship, it makes me back up and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? So what does it say? It says, do not intermarry with them. Well, how in the world are you going to intermarry with people if you just wiped them all out? How are you going to marry their sons if they don't have any sons because you just killed them all? How are you going to marry their daughters if you just killed them all? So even if I do bad scholarship, I read the text. If I'm paying attention to what the Bible says, I at least have to back up and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? So let's just read it through. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down, and this is really important. Break down their altars 
smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. Let's stop right there. Each of those things that I just read that are underlined for you there in your notes or on the screen, those are all identity markers. So God isn't saying, I want you to kill the people. He's saying, I want you to get rid of their identity because their identity does not work in my world. Their identity brings chaos. I want you to remove the identity. That's what you're after. It's not about killing people. Matter of fact, as you see, as you, as you go through the Bible, you see that Israel doesn't chase down all the people, men, women, and children. They aren't running after refugees fleeing from these cities. Matter of fact, we're told that they go in and they utterly destroy all the cities. But yet, in actuality, only three cities are destroyed. So what is actually happening here? It is the word harem, H-E-R-E-M. That is what is at issue here. Because when it says to totally destroy or utterly destroy, as I just read a minute ago, what it actually means is to remove that thing from human use. In other words, identity. I need you to put an end to this identity. And that's what you see Israel doing. They're not laying siege to cities and killing all the people. There's far less killing in the Bible than what we think is there because of this word harem. Now, they understood it because both author and audience understood the genre that was being spoken. So we have to get back into their culture and understand what is really being said. Now, I'd like to read something to you from John and Harvey Walton. It's on your resource list. It's in the Lost World series. It's about the Israelite conquest. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's on your resource list. So I want to read a piece to you. It's really important. Quote, removing an identity. This is what harem means. Removing an identity from use depends on what the identity is used for. We suggest that the action is comparable to what we might try to accomplish by disbanding an organization. Doing so does not entail typically of disposing all the members, but it means that nobody is able to say, I am a member of X anymore. After World War II, when the Allies destroyed the Third Reich, they did not kill every individual German soldier or citizen. They killed the leaders specifically and deliberately. And then a note, compare the litany of kings put to the sword in Joshua's chapter 10 to 13. They burned the flags, they toppled the monuments, they dismantled the government and chain of command. They disarmed the military, they occupied the cities, they banned the symbols, they vilified the ideology and persecuted any attempt to resurrect it. But most of the people were left alone. This is what it means to harem an identity. That's what it means. That is what the Allies did at the end of World War II, is they went in and they took the Nazi leaders down. We didn't hunt everybody down, but we hunted down the leaders. All right, Hitler committed suicide. But if he hadn't, what would we have done? It would have been terrible if we would let him live and you know fly his flag. We wouldn't have done that. We hunted down the leaders and we brought them to justice and we toppled the monuments and we took down the flag. We didn't let the Nazi flag continue to fly. That's the same thing that Israel did when it went into its land because the identity of those that were in the land were out of keeping with the ways of God. 
they were doing things that were clearly wrong. And we're not going to get into all that right now, but they did in similar fashion what the allies did when we went into Israel. The same thing. It's a stripping of identity, a stripping way. Now, I have to address this right here because I know you're all thinking about it. During the Civil War, it was brother fighting against brother. I mean, one of the most famous stories I remember of the Civil War is Grant, General Grant, who became the president of the United States eventually. Before the war, he was basically homeless, selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis. And he saw an old comrade of his. All these guys went to school together. They fought side by side together. And then brothers fought brothers in the Civil War. And the guy felt so bad that he met, felt so bad for him, he loaned Grant money. Grant, again, is on the, on the sidewalk, basically selling firewood, looks like a homeless person. The next time Grant sees him is at Appomattox, when Lee surrenders to Grant, and Grant paid his debt back to him that day. These guys are, these guys are brothers. That complicated things. But our issue today And what God is saying in the Bible is you've got to go in and harem the land and take out identities that are causing chaos, hurt, and pain. And because of a series of complications, we did not fulfill that here in the United States of America. And instead, we allowed those monuments and symbols and flags to continue to fly. And we are suffering greatly today as a result of that. When you harem something, you take down its identity. We took down the Nazi identity. God was saying to Joshua, go in and take down the identity. And what we failed to do in America, for a variety of reasons, we fell short and did not not harem what we needed to harem. We needed to bring all of that ideology of the Confederacy down. And we suffer today because we haven't done it. We should have done it. It's very sad. Well, one more uh, verse I like to point out to you, and that's in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Because it's another section where we're told a story where God says, I need you to go in, harem these people, the Amalekites. And Saul doesn't do it. Matter of fact, God says, I need you to, I need you to wipe out men, women, children, and all the animals. And Saul doesn't do that. And, and the prophet Samuel shows up and he says, what have you done? Matter of fact, Saul, before Samuel shows up, erects a monument in his own honor. There wasn't, there wasn't supposed to be any monuments in the land of Israel, none whatsoever, until the temple was built. That was the only monument. And it was to God and to God, to God alone. And so Samuel comes in. And they have this very heated argument. And actually, it is at this point when the prophet Samuel says to Saul, God is ripping the kingdom away from you. And then Samuel goes and he corrects the problem. But notice, the only thing in 1 Samuel 15 that Samuel kills is King Agag because the king was the identity marker and the personification of the people. He doesn't chase down men, women, or children. He doesn't kill any animals whatsoever. Listen, everybody. There is so much we can learn and so many problems and so many people who are needlessly running away from the Bible because they think God is a genocidal monster. God's not. God's trying to take down the Nazis. 
He's trying to end that identity. And yet we have labeled God wrongly because we have done bad scholarship. And instead we should do good scholarship so people could come to the saving truth of Jesus Christ. This is what we're after. Now, in conclusion, what is the New Testament version of Haram? There totally is a New Testament version of this. Romans chapter 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is in Christ. Sometimes I sign off emails or letters in Christ. It's an identity marker. We are in Christ. Galatians, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What that means is we center our lives on Christ. Our foundation is Jesus Christ. We start with Christ. Everything begins with Jesus Christ. That is the identity marker of my life. It is Christ first. So before I'm white or before I'm black or Asian, before I'm male or female, and long before I'm Republican or Democrat, my first thing to place myself in Christ, if I am living, if I've haremed myself, the very first thing that I have done is I view everything through Jesus Christ first and no other, no other identity marker. So here's the question for today. What needs to be driven out of your life? What do you need to harem in your own life? What identity marker needs to go so God, so Jesus Christ can shine through? This is the way that Paul says it to the Colossian church. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality. Think about how sex has been used so wrong and so, so much hurt and pain from that. Impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off, here it comes, your old self. You have haremed that whole old self away with these practices and you've put on what? A new self. You've got a new identity, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. You have a new identity. Before you're anything else, your identity is in Jesus Christ. Everybody, you can trust God's word without hesitation or reservation. It holds the very answers to life. God's truth and only God's truth sets us free. Let's dig into it. And let's understand the revelation that God has given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that your word actually contains the very answers that all of us are looking for. Help us to rightly divide it so that others can come to the knowledge of your truth. In Christ's name, amen.